Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm your host, April Fallon. We're so honored that so many of you have written us your stories. Adoption is a wonderful yet vulnerable journey, and I learn new things from every interview. Or if I have a question concerning my four children, often it gets answered on this show by a guest. I'm so thankful for this community, and I'm thankful for you Those of you who have joined Adoption Now Warriors and praying for the needs of others, if you'd like to get involved, you can look for the group on Facebook. Okay, we're going to jump right into our story today. We have Jelana Gobel, who is a speaker, author, and advocate for adoption. Her and her husband, Luke, are parents to five children, and she has written two books, one called No Sugar Coating, and the other is A Love Stretched Life. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, April. I'm glad to be here. Okay, I just want to start off by saying I love no sugar coating. Really? Oh, thank you for saying that. It really is such a straightforward book on very practical things that you would need to know when you're fostering. Things like don't change their food right away. I mean, I thought that was just so simple. And yet a lot of us don't think of that, right? So you would have them eating what your family eats. So I love that you said like, go easy on the broccoli. (laughs) Right. Don't don't like force the new child in your life to eat exactly the way you eat. A lot of times, like you said, they've been eating differently, maybe not the healthiest. And so switching their food right away could be a huge shock. I mean, little things like that in this book are super, super helpful. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think, though, you know, the title says, um, the coffee talk you need for foster parenting. I've had a lot of adoptive parents say, oh, this totally applies um, to us as well. So don't let the title scare you. Um, Just in terms of fostering, I think it's applicable to the adoption community as well. But I do talk a lot about the transitions of going in and out, which of course would not be applicable to adoption, um, but more foster parenting. But both of my kids came to me via the foster care system. And so that is why Um, I wrote this little book and honestly, April, it's what I wish somebody had like sat me down and straight talked and just said, hey, hey, here's some of the ways that this journey is going to change you in practical ways and is also going to change your lens on the world. Mm -hmm. I like that you also said that if you like a linear story, which you know I like, that fostering might disrupt that way of living that it goes all over the place. You really never know where you're going. And you talk about that in your other book. Also, a love stretched life. You talk about how things were not as you had planned. Let's talk about your first journey in adoption. Well, I would love to. Um, I mean, our first fostering journey was with a young little guy named Royal. He was our very first, we were like the ripe old age of 25. We had exactly zero parenting experience, April. So, you know, as it goes, it's like, well, if you have like a pulse and no criminal record, like you can be a caregiver for this child. And um, we, we stepped forward and it completely changed our lives. Like we very quickly realized, oh my gosh, we are in way over our heads. There is a vast difference between taking nice, neat notes in a journal, and then like living out the reality before us. And so um, 
that was our first parenting experience with Royal. We were disconnected for 13 years. Long story short, we reconnected with him five years ago when he was a 19-year-old young man. Um, we had not seen him since he was seven years old. And, um, you know, it, it's been quite a story of really, you know, we always talk about like seeds planted. There's all these metaphors about that. But I feel like in my life, the story of reconnecting with Royal has really affirmed that to not just be like a Disney version of something nice to say when times are hard, right? It, it really was like, oh my gosh, here's this young man who's now 24 and he's telling me about, you know, the Spider-Man poster in his room and the lunchbox he took to first grade. And remember when we went ice skating into Chuck E. Cheese. And so, you know, um, I think memories for for anyone impacted by trauma can be really fuzzy sometimes, but there can also be this crystal clear clarity. And it's been mind boggling for me to see both of those things in his life now. So he's not legally attached to us, but I, I call him the son of my heart and he calls me mom and we talk quite a bit and are in touch. And really, honestly, April have like kind of intentionally chosen one another. I mean, Royal did not have a choice when he was six years old, placed in foster care in my home, but he certainly had a choice as a 19 year old young man, like who he was going to be connected with and how and how often. And so it has just been a wild and woolly journey, but it's been a huge privilege for me to be able to like stand alongside him and stand alongside him through some really hard things. I mean, this this young man has lived every dismal statistical outcome of what happens when kids bounce around in an overwhelmed and dysfunctional system without permanency. And so, you know, in his specific case, this looked like um, getting into trouble and going into youth authority and then getting into trouble there and having being charged as an adult and then, you know, being released uh, to, to nothing, to the streets and all, um, all the things, you know, that come with just uh, kids who um, kind of have the system fail them honestly. And so um, that has been a, a huge eye opener for me. I just, I love how we can just continue to learn about like things in theory and then like things in technicolor real life. And I feel like Royal has brought to life all of the hurdles and the obstacles we hear about young people aging out of foster care. And it's just made it that much more real. For mm-hmm. me. I love that. I think that your story is so timely. And like I said, I love the show because whenever I have a question, either from another family or myself, then somebody like you comes around and answers those questions or gives us some hope about a story. We have really close friends who have tried to adopt four children. It's been a two-year journey. And just recently, they were reunited back with their family. And that was not supposed to happen. The biological Mm. connection had been broken, and they were supposed to be adoptable. So the family is just devastated, right? They, they want to support the family, but it's just not a good situation, the biological family. So they have been grieving and I came in, I just love them so much. I'm like, guys, you planted these seeds. You changed these kids' lives. You really, really did. And it just felt like my words fell to the ground, right? It was not, mm-hmm. like you said, just those sympathy words. I was hoping that they would be more powerful. And then I pre-interviewed you and you come on and you're like, listen, it boomeranged back around 
right? And now we have this relationship. Those seeds were planted. That is true. Even though it seems cliche, it's true. Exactly. It's really true. And I think it's it's so hard, right? Because so, I mean, that's so, it's so rare when we're, when someone's able to articulate back to us or when we're able to realize standing in that moment, standing in that grief or heartache or anger, whatever, you know, emotions at pouring your lives into, you know, kids for years and years, and then kind of having them disappear without continued contact. It's like super tough. Um, so I think it's like rare to have that clarity in, in the moment, but I'm telling you, I feel really, um, I, I feel like saying, <laughs> I feel so blessed. It's like almost a cliche, but honestly, April, I feel like if there's, there's a part of me that wonders if Royal had like been adopted by us and raised in our home. Like there's a, there's, that's kind of a haunting question mark, right? Like would his life taken all of these detours? Like would, would we have been able to kind of sidestep some of these painful things? Maybe, but also maybe not. And, you know, these are just kind of these unanswerable questions of life, but we have such a good close relationship today that um, despite the pain of, of not having the privilege of watching him grow up, um, you know, I sometimes wonder, like, would, would we be as close today, you know, if we, if, if this hadn't been our journey? And I think part of the, the strength there has been in his choice, right? And his choice to want a mom and, and a dad and to want somebody to be called Nana and Papa for his kids and to have somebody to call when he's filling out job applications and, and just all the things, all the practical things and then all the emotional things. Right? And, and that you, he knows you still love him. You know, that kids 100%. come into your home and then leave in the foster care system, but they always know we still love you. We still think of you. We still pray for you. So I, I love that part of your story, but let's move forward to when you start adopting. Totally. So, um, a few years later, we welcomed a six-month-old baby boy into our lives named Micah, and um, I had never had the opportunity to meet a child welfare-involved parent before, um, but I met Micah's mom, uh, first mom, Jennifer, at court, and at that time, the plan was you know, strongly reunification. This was her third child. Um, Jennifer grew up in foster care. Her other kids had been child welfare-involved. But what was so interesting, April, is that all I heard was that she was kind of named by her struggle. I didn't know her as a person. I kind of just knew the periphery, peripheral details as to like why this child was in foster care. But at court, um, I kind of walked up to her and just said, hey, um, I, I'm Jelana and I'm fostering your son. And when he's reunited with you, I want your bond to be strong. And I have this for you. And I just held out a photograph and she burst into tears and I found myself very unexpectedly, giving her a hug and saying, I just want to let you know I'm rooting for you. And honestly, those words, I'm rooting for you, kind of became like the driving force um, for our relationship. And that was 13 years ago. Um, There have been so many ups and downs, so many ups and downs. In fact, we have the privilege of sharing our story for 90 minutes every month with brand new state caseworkers. Um, just trying to give them a picture of what it can look like when a foster turned adoptive mom and a biological mom like work in collaboration. Um, you know, to make a very long story short, after doing you know 150 hours of supervised visits, which really 
honestly put me in counseling because I just was walking this like jagged tightrope. It felt like of like, oh my gosh, what does it look like to walk this road well and with integrity and to love this child with every fiber of my being and also to begin to care deeply for his mother and begin to understand some of her stories and listen to some of what she's been through and really begin to feel like, gosh, if I had lived her life, there is a darn good chance I might be standing where she's now standing today. So what would, it, you know, what would I want um, for somebody to do or how to engage with me? It's so powerful. We ended up adopting her child and then we ended up fostering and then returning twice her fourth child, which was the full biological brother of the third child who we adopted. So it's been an interesting journey, April, because we started out as like general foster parents, right? Like I didn't know her. I just showed up at court and I introduced myself and that was the beginning of our relationship. But then once we had adopted her third child, when she you know, when, when the full biological brother of Micah came into care, um, that was when it was like, okay, this, you know, the state of Oregon was shoulder tapping us saying, now you're a relative and this child needs a foster placement and can you be it? And so we have had a lot of emotions that we felt with and toward one another throughout the years. Um, and honestly, I'm really proud to say that, um, I mean, she's one of the most cherished and most influential people in my life. I adore her. And it has been a really challenging road. I feel like we've basically been building this bridge to one another where we didn't have a blueprint. And so it's kind of wonky in some places. And in some places, like entire planks are missing <laughs> where we've had to kind of like trust one another, even when it's been hard. Um yeah, but we, you know, we're we're 13 years into this relationship, and so it's taken me into adopting one of her children after he was in foster care for two years, and then fostering and returning an infant to her back to her treatment facility, and then four years later, when she relapsed, fostering him and returning him nine months later, and that was um, six years ago. She's been clean and sober for six years. Um, and I'm super proud of her for that. And she's a darn good mom, honestly, when she's clean and sober. And um, yeah, she, she and her other three kids um, come over to our house quite a bit. Like we are not co-parenting. I want to make that very clear. Um, but we have an openness with her and her, her other kids that just feels like natural. In fact, Jennifer and I were speaking to caseworkers last week. And the question we always get is like, well, how did the two boys do together? And I thought Jennifer gave a brilliant answer when she said, you know what, they, they're kind of like more like cousins. Like that's kind of the way that they treat and interact with one another. It's like, yeah, I mean, they can, they can have fun together. They can kind of annoy each other. Um, they're excited to see each other. Sometimes they need to be, I mean, just all the kind of like sibling slash cousin stuff. But I think that that was a perfect description. They're kind of engage like cousins. And it's never been something that Micah has not been aware of, right? So like at developmental kind of age appropriate stages along the way, we've been able to like fill in more blanks about who Jennifer is and why he was in foster care and why he was adopted and why he has, you know, a brother and sister that live in a different home and a brother that lives with Jennifer and he lives here, he lives here. And, you know, it's a lot for a child to take in, but we've tried to just kind of gently ease him into all these dynamics, but there's never been like a big reveal, if you will. He's right. always known who Jennifer was. 
We are going to bring Jennifer on next show so we can ask her lots of questions because she has two other children. Did she have them at the time? Um, and then what's the child's name that came back and forth? Elias. Elias. Okay. Uh-huh. I wonder how Elias feels going back and forth. Like, did he ever say, I just want to stay in one home? You know, it's interesting. Well, first of all, one of the things that struck me is that it is obviously, for the sake of stating the obvious, vastly different to to foster an infant than it is to foster a preschooler who can like ask you point blank, auntie, where's my mom, right? Like it's very different um, when you're fostering a tiny little baby that isn't expressing an opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think for a while, what was, what was sad for me was, well, first of all, Jennifer and I had to get our relationship back on track. I just felt really um, upset and kind of betrayed by, it felt a slap in the face, like the way that Elias entered foster care. But, um, you know, we, we, we sat down and we talked it through and there were a lot of tears and, you know, it was like this, Hey, we want our family to get back on track, but it's not like we just name it and claim it and just say like, okay, we're good. And we go back. Like it's going to take years to rebuild that trust that we had been slowly building up over years. And she got that. And I'm totally happy to say like, we have now surpassed that point where I feel like the trust is and and is higher than ever. But initially to answer your question, April, Elias could have a hard time um, coming back to our house because now instead of this being auntie and papa's house where it's like the fun house, the place where he got to go on weekends and kind of engage with Micah and the other kids here and bounce on the trampoline. Now our house represented trauma. Like this is the place I stayed when my mom disappeared and didn't come back for me. And so for a while, um, you know, he would walk in the door of our house once he was back at Jennifer's and we would offer to, um, you know, pick him up for a play date or what have you. Um, he would come over and he would walk in and then he would immediately want to turn around and go back home just to make sure that his mom was there. And after, and that's fine, more than understandable. We didn't try to convince him otherwise, but after kind of giving him that space, um, you know, I'd say six months to a year into it, he felt comfortable after being reunited with Jennifer, he felt comfortable coming and hanging out. And now, now he's at the point where he's like, Auntie, can I spend the night? You know, like uh, he, he likes to be here and we love having him. So thankfully that's fallen by the wayside, but you know, we don't just turn it on and off, right? Like we were, we were a safe place for him and then something traumatic happened in his life and we were the ones trying to hold the pieces together for him. And unfortunately, you know, our house now represented abandonment and trauma, right? And so that that wasn't going to just change overnight, but I'm really grateful that after a long time of just being steadfast and trying to be real chill about, you know, about what he needed. Um, we are back on track. It's interesting when you say that you were not co-parenting, it's more like a partnership. Would you say that? I would say that. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, I really essentially, you know, Jennifer and I live in the same city and we're raising full biological brothers 20 minutes across town from one another. I mean, it's almost like the ultimate nature versus nurture experiment, right? Like our households are different and kind of the way we run things are different, but we're able to to connect with one another. We're able to kind of compare notes because the boys, despite, you know, differences in environment and being raised, do have quite a few similarities. And so, you know, I'm happy to share pictures and invite her to his baseball games and, um, you know, talk about this, that, and the other um, with her. And that's, you know, I want to be clear, that wasn't like, 
we met and all of a sudden we're super close. Like we're talking about like, this is year like seven or eight in our relationship. Right. When, um, you know, when Elias was, uh, returned and we've had, you know, all these ups and downs. It's not, I don't want to communicate that it's been this like rainbow and roses journey. I mean, there have certainly been moments where I feel like the joy has been multiplied just because it's been so hard to get to where we have been to find sure, you know, footing on that kind of relational bridge to one another, but it has been pretty hard. Um, And like I said, she's been really frustrated and mad at me at times and same, same with her. Mm -hmm. I Um, think it's different when you have an addiction involved, right? With our birth families, there is that as well. So it's not as linear as I'd like it to be. We love them deeply and have relationship with them, but sometimes it's in and out. And sometimes it looks really messy because we don't know where they are in their journey. Are they clean? Are they just coming off of something? And so that can make it really difficult. But I'm, I want to say, I'm just so proud of you for staying in it and really committing to your child's birth parent. I mean, that is a commitment to stay in a relationship. And because of that, you're being blessed because of that, all these things are coming out of it and we get to learn from your relationship. And so the next show is going to be so good because we're going to bring her on and we're going to talk about everything a little bit more in detail. You do talk about it in your book as well. I do talk about it. And I, Yeah. And I also want to just be saying, I mean, there were times for my own emotional boundaries, April, like you said, addiction is a game changer, right? As you're engaging with someone. And so there were times for my own emotional boundaries where I had to say, you know what, I'm not supervising visits anymore because this feels too heavy or I feel too heartbroken when you're a no-show. Like I need to pull in, you know, extra supports and kind of lean on the agency, so to speak. So there were a lot of ups and downs, but I, even in the downtimes, even in the times where we weren't as connected, um, you know, I still feel like there was a foundation of her knowing that we genuinely cared about her, which is what allowed us to kind of circle back around to one another in the times where we kind of had some dips and valleys in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you went on to adopt again. Yeah. Again. Oh gosh. This is my sweet little Charlie Fred. I feel like so many people have, um, have these stories, right, of of getting a call from the foster agency and asking if you can, you know, take in a child for this very short amount of time. For us, it was, can you pick up this baby from the hospital and foster him for the weekend? April, I barely talked to my husband, Luke, about it because I was like, hey, 48 hours, like you can do anything for 48 hours. Well, that is now, um, to my delight, my 10 and a half year old son named Charlie. And um, when Charlie was you know, we didn't know very much about Charlie's biological parents. It was not at all the same story that I've walked with, with Jennifer. Um, You know, his, his uh, birth mom was out of the picture when he was just five weeks old and we didn't know who dad was. So, um, you know, we're kind of like holding this mystery and we were so pleased to be able to adopt him. He has a very loving um, biological grandparent um, out of state that has remained in touch with us. And we're super, super thankful for her presence and his life. And in our lives, she's kind of, um, you know, she sends all four of my kids, uh, you know, like a dollar for Valentine's Day or like a birthday card. I just really, really appreciate her. Um, But, you know, when he was four years old, he was diagnosed with fetal alcohol 
syndrome. We had begun to notice, you know, after his adoption finalized when he was around two, um, you know, we had begun to notice some just kind of general delays. And, you know, it's always tricky, right? When those delays kind of fall right on the edge between like typically developing and delayed. And we just were realizing like, okay, he's super late to get his teeth. He's super late to walk. He's super late to talk. He is crying all the time. He never sleeps more than two to three hours. And, you know, looking back now I can see so many signs, but I think at that point it was just kind of a like, well, give it some time. Like, let's just see what's, what's happening here. So the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome is um, pretty daunting um, and he is pretty severely impacted and we love him dearly and our life is on a different um, parenting track for sure. Um, you know, I think parenting trauma and is one thing and then parenting a child who has um, some significant in utero substance abuse, specifically alcohol, um, is quite another. And so it has definitely put our family on um, a path to being able to see kids that have these invisible brain-based disabilities. And it's super tough, April, because they honestly, on the outside, just look like they are non-compliant and like willfully disobedient and super, like it can, it can look all sorts of very unattractive ways, but really it's a, it's a brain-based disability. You know, this was, this is um, something that's irreparable and, and he will have it forever. And so our privilege and our daily challenge is to try to accommodate him and to make the environment, you know, as smooth as possible. And how did the school handle your child? You know, I wish I could say like they handle him beautifully. Like we've had this, I have to say we had an amazing relationship with his kindergarten through second grade teacher. Um, he was in a blended classroom. She was like a unicorn and we just adored her and had such a good relationship. Um, and, and I think it's rare for teachers to have both a strong, like very strong structure and very high nurture, which is what he was needing. Um, but unfortunately, as his behaviors got more severe, he was excused from that school um, and put in a new school where unfortunately, like it seemed like the only tool in their toolbox was to use like physical restraint. And it's been a whole thing and we're still kind of in the midst of it. But long story short, April, um, his behaviors, he, he was so dysregulated at school. There was a no learning going on and B, he, it was not an emotionally uh, safe place for him to be. So we are now homeschooling him. I'm not sure how long this will be, but um, it was enough for, you know, my husband Luke to find a different job so that he could be home more and we could switch off mornings. And then we have a developmental disability aide who we cherish and are so grateful for, um, who has worked with our family for three years and knows Charlie better than anyone and um, hangs out with him uh, after we do our homeschool mornings. So, And how did you find that person? You know, so fetal alcohol syndrome, like autism, are one of the two um, invisible disabilities, brain-based disabilities that qualify for um, developmental, the state's developmental disability services. And so, you know, there can be contracted agencies that can work with families. We were really fortunate that, you know, my husband used to be, be a university professor and was able to shoulder tap a 
a really great student of his um, who got married and is basically the husband of the student that kind of that that took over. Um, so that's how we found them. You know, it can people can find their developmental disability aids a number of different ways, but um, we feel super fortunate because we recognize it is pretty rare for somebody to have that kind of longevity in a caretaking role. Um, and so we're we're super grateful that that's how we found them. What would you say to a family who's looking into that right now and they're just like, where do I start? You know, I think I would say, um, you know, for families to if if there if if there's some big behaviors going on with your kids, I think there's really a tendency um, to to kind of think about trauma, and that is very 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 real. We know that the effects of trauma are unquantifiable, and I think oftentimes um, we may not know the full history. And I think it's it's fair to also look at um, you know in utero alcohol exposure um, for some of those behaviors. Because I think if we look at, um, if we, and, and the, the I, I don't want to quote a statistic that's not 100% accurate, but it is exponential, the number of kids that are affected with FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that are in foster care or adoption. It is astronomically more than in just the general population. And it's not something that's really talked about. I think oftentimes in training sessions, it's really insufficient. There's kind of this quick like drugs and alcohol lumped together, but families don't really leave knowing the behavioral signs of what that can look like. So, so often we attribute those behavioral signs to trauma. And while that could very well be true, it can also be true that there could be some, you know, substance uh in utero substance exposure issues that are also coming into play. Mm-hmm. So if that is something that you suspect may be your child, I cannot recommend enough Diane Malbin's book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder. It's just a short little primer. And that was the book that I read April that was like, here it is. I mean, Charlie was racking up diagnosis after diagnosis after diagnosis. And if you looked at the diagnosis, it was like, yeah, okay, yeah, I can see that. But we were missing, it was like we were interlocking these puzzle pieces of diagnoses, but we were like missing the picture of like, what's the landscape? What's the ultimate like picture here of like what we're putting together as we're snapping all these puzzle pieces mm-hmm. together. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I read that book, Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, um, that it kind of clicked into vision for me. And I just thought, this, this is what Charlie has. And so I would really encourage families to not be timid, but to go to your primary care physician, to seek out a developmental pediatrician and to, you know, come with like this, this is, these are the signs and these, this is how my child exhibits these signs. So almost, you know, in the most respectful way, prove to me he doesn't have this. And right. If I had waited for somebody to give me a, a, a diagnosis, I would still be waiting. Yes. And I'm so grateful that I, you know, that I just kind of took um, took the initiative um, because, as you know, like this is this is a road that has a lot of um, confusing things. As we as parents do our best to try to help our kids, and um, we just don't want to miss that sign. It's like unlocking the mystery, right? And you know, 
I believe in being an advocate for your child as well. And I do know what it's like to have a doctor say, well, we think it's this or we think it's that. But some of the signs you told me are not sleeping at night, head measures small, writing is hard, hearing is hard, and they have a hard time in school. I think getting the school behind you is really important. That's what we needed is the school to say, this is what we're seeing. And then we said, this is what we're seeing at home. And then you're working with a doctor that cares and that you trust and coming to a place where you can find a true diagnosis. And so I'm glad that you continue to do that. We talked a little bit in our pre-interview about adoption and how adoption wrecks your life, but also saves it. And I want to just talk really quick about your book. Let's talk about A Love Stretch Life. So A Love Stretch Life is honestly the the kind of... <laughs> If you could look at no sugar coating as like this short, like little bullet point manual, right? Of like, here's some things you need to know. A Love Stretch Life is really kind of the narrative version of how those things have played out in my life. It really follows the narrative of, of fostering Royal and then reconnecting with him as a young adult. It, it uh, explores, you know, the 13 years that Jennifer and I have been walking alongside one another as I've adopted one of her children and fostered another. And it explores the the joy and the grief and really rumbling with that um, on this road less traveled with our youngest who has fetal alcohol. So there's a lot of other stuff in the book. I don't want to just say it's like those three stories, but those are kind of the three main narratives. But I just talk about, um, you know, friendship and what it means to kind of survive versus thrive. And, and, you know, what does it look like to, to try to look for support and try to like, keep ourselves afloat so that we're not drowning as we're trying to uplift others in our family. So the book, A Love Stretch Life, explores all of that. And honestly, April, it is not a book where it's like, hey, I have overcome these difficulties. So here's my five tips to like live your best life with your, you know, foster adopted child. It is very much like, hey, I'm standing in the trenches and I want people to feel uh, more seen and less alone. And that's really what you know, that, that was the driving force of, of being able to write a love stretch life. Thank you so much for being on the show. We are going to bring on Jennifer next show. So you're going to be with us next week as well. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, April. It was so great to talk with you. And thank you for listening. If you have an adoption story you'd like to share, please email us at afallon at adoptionnowpodcast.com. We would love for you to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode.